Welcome to Cover Stories with Chess Life, the U.S. Chess Federation's podcast that goes behind the scenes and more in-depth about each month's Chess Life magazine cover story. U.S. Chess is a 501c3 nonprofit membership organization whose mission is to empower people, enrich lives, and enhance communities through chess. To become a member, go to uschess.org and click on the Join button where you can find a membership option that is right for you. As a member, you enjoy rated play, print and digital copies of Chess Life or Chess Life Kids, discounted chess books and equipment, and you help U.S. Chess grow the game. If you are already a member, consider clicking on the donate button at uschess.org. So I'm welcoming Grandmaster Robert Hess to our April edition of Cover Stories with Chess Life. Robert has been the In the Arena columnist for Chess Life magazine since the March 2017 issue. As we're recording this, the U.S. Championship has just started, and Hess has an interesting history in the event. In the 2009 U.S. Championship, Hess tied for second with Grandmaster Alexander Onishuk, losing only to eventual winner Hikaru Nakamura. He was on the silver medal U.S. team at the 2009 World Team Championships. He was also awarded the 2010 Samford Fellowship based on his chess talent, work ethic, dedication, and accomplishments. A member of the 2010 U.S. Olympia team, and he was the 2009 National High School Champion with a perfect score of 7-0. A graduate of Stuyvesant High School in New York, he was a co-captain of their junior varsity football team, playing linebacker for them, um, and he ended up graduating from Yale University. Many of you know him from his online commentary for Twitch, Chess.com, and other media outlets. Grandmaster Robert Hess, welcome to the Cover Stories with Just Life podcast. Dan, it's an absolute pleasure to be here on the podcast with you. So as we talk, the National High School Championship just finished, and you won this pretty spectacularly in a Super Nationals year. It was uh, Super Nationals 4 with a perfect 7-0 record. Do you have any particularly fond memories of that event? Yeah, I do, actually, because I was sort of conned into playing in the first place. And what I mean by that is one of my best friends, Zach Wiener, went to Stives in high school together. And I promised him at the beginning of high school that I would play in the Nationals one time. I'd forgotten about that promise. And of course, I was already missing so much school. But he's like, well, Robert, you said you would. And so me even going in the first place was not sort of meant to happen. But Things worked out serendipitously. And you ended up on a cover of Chess Life magazine with, uh, or not a cover, but we did a cover shoot with Gary Kasparov and you were part of that. The actual photo with you and some of your co-competitors appeared on the inside of the magazine, but uh, was I imagine you've met Kasparov uh, had since then as well? Yeah, uh, we've interacted numerous times just at various occasions, the St. Louis Chess Club and things of that nature. The main topic for this is your April cover story on Grandmaster Hikari Nakamura winning the Grand Chess Tour, but you're also, for more than a year now, been our In the Arena columnist. What typically interests you when you select a game for that column? Well, Dan, it's funny you ask because you're the person who got me to be a columnist for Chess Live. So thank you for that, um, by the way. And what interests me is there are so many different storylines in the chess world. And it's very easy to get caught up in the Fabiano Caruana, Wesley So, Hikari Nakamura, Sam Shanklin dynamic, and now Leonard Dominguez, et cetera, right? These are the top players in the country. But I'm not necessarily looking just for that because I'm always scouring the internet for interesting games. And that's really what is key to me is the interesting game. There's always going to be a storyline behind that game, behind the players playing it. So I don't ever get caught up just by 
the big rating next to a player's name. And it, it seems to me that you take a particular interest in our young up-and-coming talent. Yeah, for sure. Because, well, firstly, we have a very talented core of youth players these days. And well, I mean, what better way to show how strong these players are becoming than to write a column to analyze their games myself and try to give that information off to the many readers that you have. Now, uh, as I said, the cover story that you penned for us this month is about Hikaru winning the Grand Chess Tour. It's possible, in fact, likely that many of our listeners uh, don't really know much about the tour. Why don't you give a quick overview of exactly what the Grand Chess Tour is and why it's a big deal that Hikaru won it? Well, it's going to be difficult to explain the Grand Chess Tour because it's always evolving. But no, on a serious note, the Grand Chess Tour was created to give the world's elite players a you know a platform and a consistent stream of income honestly it's the, what, the most prestigious tour of events that has a very like i said a very big purse for the players and what it consists of is various classical chess tournaments now there are two classical events the synchro cup and they added the uh, tournament in croatia but along with it there are the rapid and blitz events so you see a combination of time controls and they are Different events are weighted differently, and essentially to the aggregation of your results throughout the Grand Chess Tour, they'll qualify you for the Grand Chess Tour Finals, which are in London uh, that were this past December 2018. And how is it funded? That's a great question. I, well, I think they have private sponsors, considering some of the um, terms are named after companies. You know, there's the Your Next Move event. I know that uh, in Paris, they've had some private sponsors. I don't want to misname anybody, so I'm sure this information is all online. And, of course, the chess club in St. Louis is one of the founding members as well, in addition to the um, – in London, the um, – I forget exactly what their uh, initialism is, but they have chess and schools, I think. So I, I don't want to – mislabel that either. Now, I found your very first line in this article extremely intriguing. You wrote, classical chess is at a crossroads. Why don't you expand a little bit more on that than you were able to do in print? Ooh, give me all the hard stuff immediately, Dan, aren't you? <laughs> well, it's there's a, long, a lot that goes into this, but what I would say is that if you're not already a fan of chess, you're not going to sit at your computer and watch the U.S. championship games for hours and hours by yourself without, you know, especially not without a commentator, but even with a commentator, it's hard to just sit there and watch for hours. And I think that's really, it, part of it's audience related, part of it's player related. With the engines that are used today, of course, with the now Alpha Zero, Lila Chess, things of that nature, it's making the openings theory, that the branch of theory, just much more drawn out. And so you see many draws at the highest level, but also you see a lot of repetition in no small part because of the Grand Chess Tour. And it's not a criticism necessarily. I think you need it to a degree, but I believe tennis fans would be quite displeased if Roger Federer only played Rafael Nadal and Novak Djokovic. You have in their Grand Slams, you have to beat other competitors to then face the best of the best. And so I think chess has this problem to an extent where the same players play each other over and over again, and often openings are repeated over and over again. So, you know, that is sort of what I'm hinting at with that very first line. Do you think that more use of wild cards could, could help with that? Oh, 100%. Wild cards are a great addition. I also think big opens 
Well, they have had the Isle of Man, chess tournament, Gibraltar, things of that nature. Just It's exciting for some of these top players to face new competition. And you actually see this in the pro chess league with many of the top players in the world playing in the league on chess.com. And they really enjoy it because instead of saying, oh, I'm playing, if I'm Hikaru, I'm playing Wesley So for the billionth time. No, I get to play someone maybe I've never even heard of before, but it's a very strong player and it's going to give me a tough game. One of the things the tour suffered from this year was the lack of Carlson's participation. You, you, you mentioned in the article that he does not play on even-numbered years as he's preparing for his uh, for world championship defenses. What do you think of that decision and how does it affect the tour? From a kind of a viewership point of view, I think it definitely hurts the tour. Uh, because when, when Magnus plays, people watch. And it's not just Norway watching. I think just obviously he deserves to have his name being the one that people are keeping an eye out on. But I don't blame him at all for sitting out the years when he's playing a world championship match. Because at the end of the day, if he wants to stay the best classical chess player in the world, which is what the world championship is for, then, I mean, how can you blame him for it? And I, I respect it a lot. I think he makes the right decision for him. And there's just so many events these days that it can be overwhelming. And if you know he's found a preparation regimen that works for him, so I don't think he's complaining one bit about it. Another thing that really uh, piqued my interest in your article is you're writing about Hikaru's rough 2018, even as he's winning the Grand Chess Tour. Um, talk a little bit about just the sheer brutality of chess at the very top levels, because most players can only dream of playing at this level that Hikaru does, but it's still considered almost a, a bad year for him, even winning the Grand Chess Tour. Yeah, I actually found one of his lines to me. I, I was had the pleasure of getting an interview from him, and I've known Hikaru many years. As you mentioned, of course, he won the 2009 U.S. Championship ahead of me, but we, we go way back. And so it was interesting to hear him say that, like almost like he felt like it was it was it took away from the title because he had such a rough year. And he really did. He had a bad Seinfeld Cup, which is part of the Grand Chess Tour, the, the lone classical event of the 2018 tour. He did not do well at the Olympia, despite the United States team finishing the tie for first and ultimately getting the silver medals. And I was actually at that Olympiad, and so I could see firsthand the struggles that he was having because I was coaching the U.S. women's team. And, of course, we were in the same hotel, having meals and things like that. And so he really had a tough a year, and there's no doubt about it. Just by looking at his rating, you can see how many points he lost. And if in 1800 loses 40 points, 30 points, that's not a big deal. You can gain that back in a couple of games. At the highest levels, losing even 10 points, is a huge deal, especially when you're competing with others for invitations to tournaments, and it's just hard to climb back up. So he had a tough 2018. It's not easy to play these grueling events where you know every single opponent is out to get you, and not that they just don't make mistakes. So one little slip of if you have had you didn't get enough sleep, if you're just not feeling confident in the specific opening that you feel like you're playing in today's game, that all can come back to bite you. So yeah, Hikaru had a very tough year, but his speed chess, his you know, rap- rapid and blitz skills clearly have not diminished at all. And so he was able to come out on top, largely thanks to the quicker time controls. Now, obviously, it's especially devastating whenever you lose a chess game. But, you know, at the top levels, when they've invested hours in a, in a, in a classical game, and as you mentioned, the, the slightest slip can can be your undoing. I, I wonder if the fact that there are so many more tournaments now at the top levels, does it make it a little bit easier for them 
uh, because not quite as much is invested in each individual game. There's always another tournament uh, right around the corner. I think it depends on the stance you're taking here because on one hand, financially, you're very secure. And that's a great thing because as most chess players or people who try to make a profession out of playing chess know, it's not a very lucrative profession. So I think it's great that there are these events where they can have a very stable, in fact, a very great income. But from the psychological element of being a competitor, if you have a bad event and there's another event right after it, you might feel like, well, I'm still slumping. This, this, I haven't had the time needed to recuperate and figure out what my weaknesses were, where I can improve, because chess players are always trying to improve. So on one hand, it's amazing to have tournaments, and some people think you can just bounce back and it gives you a nice chance to regain your footing. But on the other hand, sometimes you know mistakes come in pairs, as they say, and you play one bad tournament, the next one after that might not be so good either. Now, this raises another interesting question for me. You know, both Carlson and Kasparov were well known for the ability to bounce back from a loss, uh, often with a win immediately following. With the up and coming players, who shows that same kind of resilience? Wow. Now you're asking the toughest questions of all. Who shows that resilience? I think there are many players who kind of have that in them. But if I have to say one player, I've been very impressed, of course, with Fabiano's play. And not that he loses very frequently, but in general, it seems like even when he lets advantages slip or he hasn't played his best game, he's still able to bounce back the next game and play quite well. So and I'm not just saying that because, you know, we grew up in the same chess circles and we've known each other for a long time. I genuinely believe that he is really great. And of course, yeah, as you mentioned, Magnus Carlsen, probably the best of the best at it. Though all chess players go on what we call tilt. Sometimes we just lose that objectivity and think, well, I lost the game, so now I have to improve and go for a win. But if you're playing for a win, you're not really playing chess. You have to play objectively and see what the board lays out for you. Well, let's take a step back and talk something about a little bit more personal for you. Um, so it's our 80th anniversary at U.S. Chess. Uh, there's a ex- wonderful exhibition right now at the World Chess Hall of Fame running through October um, about uh, celebrating the 80 years of U.S. Chess. It has to have been a big part of your life. Talk, talk a little bit about what being a member of and part of the U.S. Chess Federation has meant to you personally? Well, it's fantastic. I mean, there's just so many events offered by the U.S. Chess Federation. I've been especially impressed in recent years by some things that have gone on, many positive improvements, trying to show that there are role models in chess. I think that's been the biggest thing. And Carol Meyer and I have spoken about this, and she's really seeming to make a big effort. Alan Priest, the executive board, uh, a lot of people who just have chess in their hearts and want to push that forward. And the late Ruth Herring, of course, one of those many people who have done a great job of putting chess in the spotlight, but not in a way that is off-putting, because I think chess has this problem of seeming too smart, whereas I think nowadays with U.S. chess, doing, um, especially in scholastic events, honestly, I've been so impressed by the number of players coming to the Nationals. You, know, you, you have mentioned that to me when we were talking before doing the podcast. Just so many people are attending, and there's a good reason for that, because chess is seen as something that's great for you, but that's something that can also be great fun, and I really appreciate the efforts being made to, instead of chess being something you play in a dingy, dimly lit room, it's something that should be for everybody. 
And uh, I, I should mention that the names you mentioned, uh, Carol Mayer is our executive director, Alan Priest is the current president of our executive board, and Ruth Herring is a past president, or uh, the recently deceased Ruth Herring is a past president of the executive board. So thank you for, for those mentions. And now it's time for me to turn over the microphone to our listeners in our best question contest, where you have a chance to win $50 gift certificate to U.S. Chess Sales, which is the official chess shop of the U.S. Chess Federation. U.S. Chess Sales is the largest chess retailer in the United States. From chess books, software to DVDs, from chess pieces to clocks to computers, U.S. Chess Sales is your complete one-stop chess shop. With over 5,000 items in stock, it offers same-day shipping and a low-price guarantee. Find it cheaper at any specialty chess retailer and we'll gladly match them. Shop today at www.uscfsales.com. And our first question comes from Brian Karen, who's the administrator of the Chessbook Collectors Group on Facebook. And this is our best question. So, Brian, congratulations. You have won the $50 gift certificate. Brian's question for you, Robert, is you studied under Grandmaster Miron Scher at the same time Fabiana Caruana was studying with him. Did you interact with Fabiano in study sessions and was there a rivalry? <laughs> That's a fantastic question. So I first of all I'll say we did not do study sessions. Um, my lessons with Miran were all individual. And well, I don't know what Fabiano did, but I assume the same. But we overlapped a lot. We are very close in age. I'm December 1991. He's July 1992, if I'm not mistaken. So we played each other in youth events. And that was always pretty awkward because, uh, well, your coach prepares you for games. But when you know, your student is playing another of your students, you can't coach them. So those games were always quite difficult. So I wouldn't say there was a rivalry, at least not on my end, because I never really compared myself to other people. I played chess always because I loved it, though I definitely think, if I'm being fully honest, there, there had to be a rivalry. We were about the same age. We had the same coach. We were around the same rating, competing for you know, the number one rated spot for our age group. So... um I did, again, it was not a personal thing, but when you're in that competitor mindset, I'm sure that at the time I did feel a bit of, well, I need to outrate Fabiano and I need to do well, but I think it was all in good spirits. So you, you were actually children at the time that he was your coach? Yeah. Um, so Miran was my only coach ever, and I know he coached Fabiano. I, I don't know the exact ages, so I, you know, I, if I mistake them, I apologize, but something like from ages 8 to 12. So in the formative years. So he wasn't your coach into your grandmaster years. Oh, sorry. That was for Fabiano. For oh. me, he was my coach from by the time I started playing chess until I, even after I graduated high school, but until you know I was 18 or 19. And we still worked together intermittently after that, but I was playing less chess. So, and I was at a high enough level where lessons weren't, didn't feel as necessary, but we did collaborate after that, of course. And, and that's kind of where I was leading with the question. It, uh, for, for people like me down at sea level, it, we wonder what can a one grandmaster be teaching another grandmaster? You know, I, I guess we understand deep dives into specific opening variations, but uh, it's got to be much more than that. Yeah, it's way more than that. And this is a great question. It's something that I feel like is not elaborated on enough. And what I would say is with experience working with very strong players, it's often not about teaching them things, they have this bank of knowledge, a really a reservoir of knowledge, if you will. And so it's not, it's about just tapping into it. 
And most of the time, unlike when you're lower rated, there are, there are many mistakes that happen at the lower rated levels where someone will blunder something quite large. At higher levels, it's about getting these little advantages and working them. So you get a nagging advantage and turning that nagging advantage into something more than a symbolic edge is very difficult. And you that is where you really work on with some of these top players is kind of fine tuning their skills in positions that are just on the board. If the evaluation is not totally clear, you know you're slightly better and your chances of winning are probably a little bit less than their chances of making a draw, but trying to find every little hole in the position that will increase your edge and make your opponent's life more difficult. I think that is really one of the main things that trainers for very strong players can do and accomplish, in addition to many of the psychological aspects of you're playing this opponent, this opponent plays six different opening lines against this one variation, which one are we expecting today, and how can we take advantage of it and find their weaknesses? Well, if you've ever wondered, listeners, why uh, playing chess at a top level could be a full-time job, I think that just explained it in a nutshell. So thank you for that that answer, uh, Robert. Uh, another question comes from Devanshi Rathi, who is the founder and director of Deva, Deva Chess. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, and Project Checkmate. Uh, his, he has a website at devansharathi.com. He says... How has your education at Yale University influenced your life as a chess player? What advice would you give to college students who still want to continue with their chess careers in some way during and after college? I always love getting this question, and I'm going to circle around to the answer. But when anyone asks me about what I studied at Yale, they assume math, physics, uh, economics, computer science, things of that nature, quantitative subjects. So, Dan, I'm going to turn this on you for a second. Do you know what my major was? I absolutely do not. <laughs> well, I studied history. And so then people are like, well, what do you do with that? And every conversation I ever have, I think, is informed by my studies of history because um, you put context, you think with nuance, and it's maybe you know some specific knowledge I garnered through studying history is not applicable, but the ways of thought, you know, the ways you think. So um, how has you know, going to college, because that have they helped my chess? I think in many ways, and it's just not necessarily tangible ways. It just way opening your mind to new avenues. Because I personally believe that chess is so great because it helps you become a better, well-rounded person. Now, I can get into this all day, and I'll, I'll table this. But um, yeah, I mean, I think college, collegiate players can can get an education, get a good education and play. The problem, of course, is time limitations. You know, I can't be in class, but also be playing a two week long tournament. So, of course, it just took a backseat for me personally when I went to college. And you can see that by the number of tournaments I played. But I definitely think there is a way to do both. And there are many people in the United States who have shown that they can by attending St. Louis University. Of course, the students at Webster have done an exceptional job. So I do think it's possible. So did you have a, a specific area of history that you focused on? So Yale doesn't make you have a concentration in that regard, but my thesis was on kind of the history of the NCAA in the United States and using the University of Chicago as my critical lens. I imagine that that uh, interest in, in the NCAA kind of informed the fact that you 
went on to form a website that I understand no longer exists, but uh, the Sports Quotient, is that correct? Yeah. So the Sports Quotient was up and about from September 2012 until earlier this year, the beginning of 2019. But um, I always looked at sports and saw numbers. You see that this person scored this many points, but you have no idea if that's good or bad. So I always hated box scores because I felt like there was much more information that wasn't being given to you. And I see, feel the same way about chess results. If you see that Robert Hess beat Dan Lucas, you have no idea if I played a good game or not. You actually have to die. Uh, yeah, it, it's, yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> I, I could tell you it, it did not require a good game. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I think what you just said there often is bad for the players where you're like, if there's a big rating gap and someone wins – and the high-rated player wins, it's like, oh, well, of course that person won. But then you don't gain from the specifics of things that might have happened there. And there's a lot you can parse out in the granular detail from a chess game that does not, of course, uh, is not, of course, shown in a box score, in a 1-0, half-half. So these kind of things have always bothered me. And I just have an analytical mind, I guess, and there's, I really enjoyed it. So the sports question was formed to give a platform to college-age writers who had a statistical kind of evidence-based analytical opinion about sports. Well, I should also mention about uh, college chess. Uh, this podcast is dropping on April 2nd. Uh, this The weekend immediately following through the 5th through the 7th, I believe, of the date, the final four of college chess will be taking place at the Marshall Chess Club in, in your hometown of New York City. Uh, so, so listeners, certainly look up. We should have daily reports on uschess.org on our CLO section. Uh, so the rest of these questions, Robert, all are tied to the fact that you're a chess commentator, which makes me think that this is your most popular way of reaching uh, our listeners. The first one comes from Chris Wainscott. He asks, when you're doing commentary for an event, how do you balance the desire many fans have to focus only on marquee games with the responsibility of covering the event as a whole? For example, in 2017, at the St. Louis Rapid and Blitz, the chess world was focused on the return of Kasparov and wanted to see his games. But to cover only those would have done a great disservice to Aronian, who won the event, along with many others who played well. Wow. That's uh, actually one of the best questions I think I've ever heard. So that's got to give a shout out to that. And I'll say that it's not easy because you're always sort of reporting to somebody when you're a commentator. Um I mean, I do stream on my own, in which case that's the best because I just do what I want. But uh, it's, it's very tough. And that example is a great one. I actually was quite upset is a strong way of putting it, but I wasn't the biggest fan of just how much attention Kaspar received. And of course, he deserves it. I mean, his history is amazing in the chess world, and I have the utmost respect for Gary Kasparov, so it's not about that. But in that specific event, it was, yes, about... Gary Kaspar's return, and you want people want to see the games. But Levant played an amazing event, and sparkling chess and just chess in general is supposed to be objective. So if you want me to commentate on chess games, I'm looking for the objectively the best moves, and I just shouldn't be, I feel personally, so subjective, just focusing on my favorite player or this player who intrigues me. So it's not easy. I will definitely say that, and it's easy to get caught up in the moment. We're human, and we have emotions. But I think that it definitely can and should be done. And it takes a lot of work, frankly, from the perspective of a commentator. Because even though I've done a ton of commentary, it's 
not easy. And it's easy when there's one game in the world championship. I have nowhere else to go. Like, I'm going to watch Fabiano Caruana versus Magnus Carlsen. But when I have 30 different games going on, and maybe I do have a favorite player or a player who's been particularly interesting, it's easy to get caught up in the moment. So I think that it is a disservice to everyone, including myself as a commentator, to strictly focus on several individuals rather than looking at the games themselves. The next question comes from Vishnu Srikumar, and it is also uh, related to being a chess commentator. He says, now that you're an established chess commentator, do you anticipate working on your chess seriously to get back to or even beyond your peak rating? And if you decide to, what sort of work do you think would help you get back to that point? Another great question. Wow. You've uh, given me the hard ones today, Dan. But <laughs> so I think commentary helps my chess, actually. And the reason I say that is because I'm always looking at chess. And I try to look at every single game with a fresh mind, which is what I think you should do when you're playing chess. Just because you played a single opening many, many times doesn't mean that you remember everything or that you ever knew everything to begin with. So I think in part that helps me keep my strength, if you will. That being said, there is a big difference when I'm doing commentary and playing because I love saying this when I am commentating. I'm feeling free to blunder a queen. It's not my queen. Like if that piece gets thrown off the board, it doesn't hurt me at all. And so there's just that level of responsibility and that psychological component that doesn't appear to impact me when I'm commentating, but when I'm playing, it definitely rings true. And of course, there is a time limit, right? So all of these things impact your playing. Now that said, to get back to my peak rating, which was around 2640, I think I'm around 2580. I don't really even keep up with my ratings these days. I'm not playing so much. It would take a lot of work. And part of it is just the time to play in events. And I do still love playing, and I'm actually trying to figure out where I want to play, but it's not easy to balance the reality, being pragmatic of, if I play in a chess tournament, financially it might not be a good decision because, one, I'm missing out on lessons that I could be giving or commentary that I can be doing. And you know, I, I table that as something that you know, is realistic, but maybe not the most essential thing to me. Part of it is, when I'm doing commentary, I don't miss playing, actually, because I love doing commentary. I love helping people learn about the game of chess. So I knew that was a long-winded answer for what was a much simpler question, but I felt it deserved kind of everything that goes through my mind. When actually was your last U.S. chess-rated game? Well, I played in the Isle of Man in October 2018, and I believe all big international events are rated. So I'm going to count that because in that tournament, I played Vichy Anand and some other very strong players. So October 2018 would be the answer. It also is interesting to me that... Uh, it- when you said that you think your peak rating was 2640 and you, 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 you did hedge, you weren't 100% sure, but that number jumped out at me because just yesterday, listening to the um, live commentary from the U.S. Championship, Maurice Ashley used that number, 2640, as saying that's kind of the minimum rating you need to guarantee a place uh, in the U.S. Championship these days. Yeah, it's getting stronger and stronger. It's definitely... Um, improving every single year, the average rating is increasing, and that's thanks to the youth, you know, very talented youth that we have in this country: Jeffrey Zhang, uh, Sam Sevian, um, Wonder Liang. Soon it'll be Christopher Yu, uh, and of course, there are many people who are not coming to mind right now. And I mean, it, for me, I guess the logical follow-up is: Oh, do you want to play in the U.S. Chess Championship again? I would love to play in the U.S. Championship again. That is a tournament that excites me. 
And it's not necessarily just about the tournament. It's about the access to playing the best of the best. And I said this earlier when I used the tennis reference. I think it's one thing that is a big problem for me in terms of playing chess. And that's why I loved the Isle of Man and loved tournaments like Gibraltar. And it's no offense meant to players of my own rating because, well, I'm my rating. It's not that incentivizing for me to play another 2580 or another 2640. It's going to be a great game and it will be great for me. But that competitive drive in me is like, I want to play the best of the best. I would love to play Magnus Carlsen. I don't care if he beats me 10 times in a row. Just playing him is one, an honor, and two, just puts me at the absolute top of the game in a way that you can't get from playing anybody else. And so I, I want that challenge. I want that competition. So, yeah, please, you know, give me a wild card to the next U.S. Chess Championship. <laughs> and... Now that I think about it, uh, we mentioned your result at the 2009 uh, when you finished second. That actually was the first year that it was held in St. Louis, isn't it? It was. Can you remember back to then about just how I mean, were, were the players just raving at that time about, oh my gosh, what a, what a change to this event? Or what, what do you remember about that first one in St. Louis? I remember how well it was organized. And of course, Tony Rich... Rex Sinkfield, Joy Bray, the entire crew that does an amazing job at the St. Louis Chess Club will say, oh, it wasn't that great then. Because, of course, you've seen as time has gone on how much it's become better over the years. But I just remember being in a very professional setting, somewhere where I was happy to play. And I understand the financial limitations of chess in the United States. You asked me about the U.S. chess and playing in events. But a lot of these events are in, in ballrooms and in places that don't feel very welcoming. And that is the one thing that I'll, I'll never, ever take for granted at the St. Louis Chess Club. Is, I mean, of course, they have great financial resources and that shouldn't be discounted. But just the fact that they have food, you know, refreshments offered and the chairs are comfortable and the environment is gorgeous and you feel welcome and you feel like it's somewhere that you want to be. And that was definitely something that I hadn't quite experienced as a chess player to that point. And I don't know if it impacted my result at all, but that is definitely some of the fondest memories I have in my chess career is just walking in there and feeling like this is part of something important. Well, that's a nice tribute to our friends at the St. Louis Chess Campus. So thank you for, for those memories. Now, the, the last question I have comes from Don Wade, who lists himself as from Pikeville, Tennessee, which is uh, fairly close to our U.S. Chess Home Offices in Crossville, Tennessee. Don asks, when I watch your online commentary, especially with Danny Ranch, you fire off analysis so fast that it really impresses me. My question to you is, excuse me, is practicing Puzzle Rush good for weaker players or is it better to concentrate on other studies? Well, firstly, thank you very much. And I'll also say that I don't love tactics. Now, tactics are very important. Do your tactics. Every student of the game out there, do your tactics, do what your coach tells you. But the reason why, uh, and this relates to Puzzle Rush, I think Puzzle Rush is great fun and it definitely helps you with pattern recognition. It helps you work with quick, precise calculation. And so I recommend it wholeheartedly. But the reason why I'm not the biggest fan of tactics, and this, to be honest, is really for a master level plus audience, my words right now, is that it gives you a hint that there is something there. So when you see a position and it says white to move, you know that white has a winning position most likely. And you don't get those hints over the board. And a great example of this is actually at the US, the US Women's Chess Championship. It happened just yesterday. Carissa Yip was playing against Akshita Gorty. 
and Akshita Gorty resigned in a position that she could hold. Now, there's the history of the game where you had a bad position, you know you've been worse, but all of a sudden, you, because of that history, you're thinking, all right, I'm, you've resigned before you physically have done so. And so what I like to do with my students is I like to give them positions and have them evaluate them because that is the hardest thing for chess players to do. It's yes, seeing ahead is difficult, but oftentimes we see ahead, but we don't know how to evaluate that position because we may say, well, I'm giving up my rook for a bishop and one pawn, and that seems like not enough, but the way that position looks in my head seems pretty good. And so we kind of toy with that option, but may not be able to weigh the balance very well. And so that's why I really love analyzing games, commentating, but also just giving my students positions where it's up to them to figure out. There's no hints. It's like you're at the chessboard saying, my opponent just made this move. What am I going to do now? And there's no Robert Hess coaching over your shoulder. Hey, well, it's white to move. You clearly have something here. It's like, no, you better use that brain of yours to figure it out. So I know, again, I'm, I'm going on a rant here, but I do think puzzle rush tactics are very valuable, and I will never say otherwise. But to me, one of the most important things you can do is putting yourselves in game mode. And so if you are just scrolling through, which I do every single day, uh, you're just scrolling through games and you just pause at a moment, like, oh, this is an interesting moment here. What would I do? And then you analyze that. And then you can, of course, flip on the engine and say, well, my idea was absolutely terrible. Never mind. But I do think that has much more value added to your game over the long run than just doing tactic after tactic. You should do both. They're complementary. But I, I feel very strongly about this. And and so I think looking at positions from a very neutral point of view is essential to growth in chess. What do you think of the old canard that uh, if you studied nothing but tactics, that that could get you at least to the 1800 level? Um, I think that definitely has some merit, uh, a lot of merit, actually. And I've seen this with friends of mine. Uh, well, one of my best friends from university, he's my roommate, in fact, still to this day, we went to college as well. He never had any formal chess training and he just started playing on chess.com. And I would say he's around the 1700 strength without any end game study, without opening knowledge. And he just did a lot of tactics and just played a bunch. And he played when he was a kid. So it's not like he just appeared on this planet as a 1700 strength. But I definitely think that there is truth in that. You know, you, if you have that tactical ability, you will be able to, well, you're going to think on your own two feet. but if you have that background, then I think you definitely can get to a pretty good level at chess just off of that. So before we sign off, is there anything on your mind now that you have an open microphone that you want to share with our listeners? Well, absolutely. And we started with the Grand Chess Tour and my article on Hikar winning and classical chess at a crossroads. I actually would love to discuss what I mentioned in this article about Hikaru understanding the you know personal streaming and I would love, you know, actually almost like a conversation that I don't want to take over the mic here, but something that I really feel, and I'll ask you first before I give you my comments, what do you think, how can chess become more popular and is there anything that top players specifically can do to help the game grow? Oh, I, I think it's absolutely what's happening now. The uh, increased reliance on social media, uh, personal branding. All of that will uh, endear themselves to the fans and, and generate the interest. And of course, just the fact that chess is such a natural internet sport helps. Yeah, I completely agree. And one thing I'll say that is 
really been detrimental for chess is that it's played in silence. And the reason I say that, of course, it's great for your actual chess playing. Nobody wants to have someone whispering in your ear, you know, sweet nothings and yelling at you and saying, go clean up your room. But the problem is you don't get to see the personality of the players. And one of the things, as I mentioned in the article, and Hikaru has done better than anyone, is going on Twitch and just playing chess, analyzing games, and interacting with the many chess fans out there. I think it gives them like a legitimate connection to the players. That's something that's been missing for a long, long time. Because chess players study in silence, or you know, with a trainer, but it's secluded. They play in silence. So you don't get to hear their thoughts or talk to them or ask them things. And then after their games, they're tired, which I fully understand, the exhaustion. And they just want to prepare for the next game, which is a grueling effort. So I understand why there's this inherent silence in the game, but I don't think it's good for promotional purposes. So you know, now that you've given me the floor to speak, I'm, <laughs> I really feel strongly about that. And I know that a lot of people say, we need to switch to fast chess, quick chess, um, speed chess, blitz. And... I understand that. I completely get it because in this age of kind of instant gratification, there are people who just want things to happen and ha- them happen quickly. But I think that there is still room when we talk about classical chess being at the crossroads. There still is room in this world for classical chess, but you need to build fandom first. And there are fans of the game. I don't think there's the same fans of players, at least not in the way that you see in other sports like basketball or tennis. And so I think having Twitch has been huge in the chess world. And just the broadcast in, in, from across the world, I mean, St. Louis does an amazing job with Jen Shahadi, Yasser Sarawan, Maurice Ashley, and the crew there. And then you see in all the big events, they have great commentary teams. I, you know, I can give a shout out to so many people, Anna Rudolph, Sopiko Gurmashvili, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I, I think that it's bringing a more lively element to the game, which is really essential in bringing more people into it and especially the youth these days. Yeah, that's fascinating. I'd like to add, you know, we we started doing Twitch streaming from our US Chess National events as well. Um, Jennifer Shadi and uh, uh, Grandmaster Megan Aminoff were doing a Twitch stream from the National High School and we'll be doing that from the Junior High and the National Elementary as well. So yeah, though no, absolutely, and I, I think that the St. Louis commentary team, um, uh, Maurice Ashley especially, is very uh, good about bringing out their personalities in his his interviews post uh, post matches. Yeah, I really don't think people understand how difficult it is to do a post chess game interview, and Maurice does an amazing job, and he's a friend of mine. But I say that with the least bias possible. I think that he does a fantastic job getting into the mind of the players after they've just played an exhausting game of chess or games of chess, if it's rapid and blitz, and still getting information out for the fans to learn from. And I just think that's really going to help grow the game, is knowing the players on a more personal level. I'm not saying you know the paparazzi should go out and stalk these players. Of course not. But I think players offering more of themselves is only beneficial for the players. And i like to see more and more of that. I think it's becoming a trend in chess and we have some great representatives and role models at the very top but i think as to circle back to something i said earlier where chess being seen as this like ultra smart game is both true in the sense that it does help with strategic reasoning individual responsibility whether you win or lose you're doing um 
obviously calculation, you know, a lot of things can can be said about the benefits of chess, but coming off as being kind of smarter than thou is not a good look in my opinion, because um, this may be very controversial and you gave me the floor, so I'm, <laughs> I'm apologizing, but also taking it, that the notion that chess grandmasters are just like these absolute geniuses, I think is a bit misguided. And I will say that that's not meant to be an insult to anyone in particular, but the marginal benefit of being, let's say, a high master level player to get to grandmaster, I don't think it's so high. And you really just become better at chess. Now, that's great when that's your pursuit. And I think that's uh, very valuable. And that's, you can say that about many fields. But the problem with chess is generally there's no universal applicability in terms of playing the game. Like you play a game, people enjoy it, but it doesn't necessarily. Um, I don't know if there's necessarily a more tangible benefit than that, which it doesn't have to be. No one owes anybody anything. But I I guess I'm saying all this to point out that, yes, there are many, many very smart chess players. No, you don't have to be a quote-unquote genius to become good at chess. It takes hard work. It takes um, a lot of study. But I think the game does itself a big disservice by – coming off that way because in any field if it's seen as oh you you won't know because you don't know that's just for me that's really um not the impact that i want to leave on the world of chess and in my commentary that's something that i absolutely strive for i'm not perfect i make my very fair share of mistakes but i want people to see that hey here are the ideas presented chess is in fact the best commentator game or if you want to call it a sport because unlike basketball, when a team scores, you're like, well, the other team's going to try to score back. No, no, in chess, you say, that move was made. Here's the reason why. Here's likely what the player was thinking. Here's what the opponent should consider as a response. And so you can actually help people get better without kind of putting other people down in the process. And that, I think, has really um, been a problem in the chess world. And, in, and I think it's not, like I said, no individual responsibility but a more of a game issue because it's played in silence, because you don't get to interact with the players. You don't get to hear them say, I actually calculated this line that just completely loses and I'm human and I make mistakes. But the reason I didn't play that bad line is because of all the study I did. And this is here are these concrete reasons for how you can do this yourself. So again, I know I talk forever and that's one of the reasons I got in the commentary. It allows me to talk and no one really is telling me to stop talking, but, um, yeah, I have many, many thoughts on the subject, feel very passionate about it. And my goal, my sole goal in all of this is to help people learn and use chess as that vehicle to help them become more, you know, more learned folks, if you will. So yeah, there's my spiel. Well, what a perfect place for us to put a period, maybe an exclamation point to, to end this. Listeners, if you have any comments on uh, what Grandmaster Hess has just expounded upon, please write us at podcast at uschess.org. We would love to hear your thoughts. Grandmaster Robert Hess, thank you so much for joining us. This was fascinating. I have a feeling this is going to be a particularly popular episode of our Cover Stories with Chess Life podcast. So thank you so much. Dan, it was absolutely my pleasure. And for everyone listening, I really appreciate your dedication to chess. And I'm happy to hear from you all on social media. Now it's time for our monthly segment on Cover Stories with Chess Life called The Skittles Room, where we talk to people that are doing things of interest to the U.S. chess community. Joining us today is our creative content coordinator at U.S. Chess, Natasha Roberts. 
Natasha, welcome to Cover Stories. Thanks so much, Daniel. You have been our creative content coordinator uh, for for how long now? Uh, now, uh, you, you were also our editorial assistant for a while before you got this new title. So how long total have you been with U.S. Chess? I believe it's been about three and a half years. And what did you do uh, in your career before joining us? Well, I went to school late. Um to undergrad uh, late. I went to Indiana University. I started in my mid-20s, I believe. Um, There, I worked uh, on the school publication, the IDX, Indiana Daily Student. And I have done some freelance stuff, um, but uh, U.S. Chess really jump-started my career. So, now, two of the things that you do that make you most visible to uh, our readers are the infographic in Chess Life each month and doing the art direction for Chess Life Kids. Talk a little bit first about the infographic. So this was something that you came to me. Um, I think it was September of not last year, but the year before. And we started talking about doing this on a regular basis and so I get you guys give me now Melinda it was you originally um but now Melinda uh, Matthews is in charge of deciding um what we're going to be featuring each month and I get all of those really interesting details and information from her and then we get to look at Um, making an infographic and we do that every month we feature different players or tournament information this um, coming issue we are talking about it's the women's issue so we're talking about the history of of women so in chess and that'll be in our may issue uh this this podcast will be available in in april and with april comes the uh the bi-monthly chess life kids uh and it was i guess this is the third issue i think that you've done as the uh art director is that is that correct i think it's the fourth i'm looking at my shelf right now trying to count i think it's the fourth though Okay, but you've made a number of interesting changes working hand-in-hand with editor Melinda Matthews. Uh, Tell our readers who may never have seen an issue of Chess Life Kids or who are only familiar with it from a few years ago, what's new and interesting in it that that they can see? So some of all of our column headers have, we had an artist, um, I'm not familiar with his last, let me... So we have an artist doing the headers, um, and he designed all of the column headers. His name's Val Bakov. Bakov, I'm sorry if I'm saying that so badly. Bakov sounds correctly. It's spelled B-O-C-H-K-O-V. Yes. So um, he did designed headers for all of our columns that um, are so it gives the whole magazine a cohesive look and feel and um, he also has started doing the comic strip and um, so each month we feature a player who kids 
are most likely familiar with. They have long successful careers or at least successful careers in some cases. Um, and we interview them for my first move and a, to counter that, or as an additional feature, we have started having, uh, these very bright and colorful and amazing comic strips that we put together that are often based off of some part of the player's life. Um, we've done a few so far and we're doing rays this next month. So we do that. And then we also had our artist who designs the rookie character update rookie. So he looks, um, he matches our style of our headers and the rest of the magazine very well. Um, and so, yeah, there's just a lot of art. We've also incorporated some puzzles, um, like you can go through the magazine and find answers to questions, and um, we're going to hopefully have more activity, hands-on activities, too, in the It's Your Move column that we have every month. So lots of really great stuff. And listeners, if especially our adult listeners, if you've never seen a copy of Chess Life Kids, as long as you're a U.S. Chess member, you can access a digital viewer or download a PDF of it by going to the Chess Life Kids link that you'll find at the bottom of the uschess.org homepage. So, uh, Natasha, you do a lot for U.S. Chess that's kind of behind the scenes as well. I know just today you and I worked on a gift certificate that, that we designed. It's kind of things that keep the Federation running that people may not know that we're also doing. So you have a whole laundry list of uh, duties on your to-do list. Yeah, so I just started the junior high school championship program. So um, the layout on that is going to be the primary work for the remainder of today. Um, and then we have the national elementary school um, championship program coming up starting next week or the following. So those are very current. Lots of good stuff. You always find new things for me to do. So. <laughs> that, that, that sounds like a very nice way of saying I'm a slave driver. <laughs> so, no, no. so Natasha, thank you for joining us on this Skittles Room segment. And uh, listeners, uh, please do check out her work on uschess.org at the Chess Life Kids link and on the infographic in every issue of Chess Life magazine. Thank you, Natasha. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the April edition of Cover Stories with Just Life. Our podcast will return next month when we'll be discussing the special women's issue for May 2019. Make sure to listen to our other U.S. Chess podcasts, which include One Move at a Time on the second Tuesday of each month, Ladies' Night, which drops on the third Tuesday of each month and hosted by our Women's Program Director, Jennifer Shahadi, and coming later this month on the fourth Tuesday, the introduction of Chess Underground, hosted by our Assistant Director of National Events, Pete Karianis. Thank you and good chess.